so we were doing this series called Half Truths, and um, I'm helping you to eliminate bumper stickers on your car through this series. Um, so uh, when we first started, we the first one we talked about was everything happens for a reason, and the problem we uh, talked about in that one was it misunderstands our world and the teaching of the scriptures. But for the believer, for those who love God, everything works for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So there is some truth to that, but you have to kind of make sure that you're understanding the context. A couple weeks ago, we looked at God helps those who help themselves. And I think I told you that at our dining room table, as we sat around there, um, that my mom had a plaque on the wall that said, um, just that, uh, God helps those who help themselves. And with five boys, or six boys actually, um, I'm sure that was something she wanted to rub off on her boys. And, but that m- misunderstands grace. And uh, certainly there are people out there who, who, can't help them, you know, who, who can help themselves, and certainly that's true. But the Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves, who know they can't and need help and need grace. And then last weekend we talked about God won't give you more than you can handle. And I believe that misunderstands how God is directly involved in, like, for instance, I know there are some people out there that believes that God directly gives people cancer. God directly causes natural disasters. I don't believe that's true. I believe uh, that uh, God has allowed for sin in the world. And he's allowed for the fallenness of humanity and for the curse of the world. And we are living out the fall and we are living out the curse. And uh, many of the problems we have are self-inflicted. We talked about that. Uh, But uh, what, what I do know this is this world will give you more than you can handle. And that's when you need to call out to him and say, help, right? So the, the one we want to look at this weekend is God said it, I believe it. That settles it. And so some of you are going, okay, for crying out loud, now I'm going to have to go out and peel another one off the car bumper. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know what to do here. Um, no, you don't. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking, because I saw this uh, bumper sticker, and maybe you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. It says coexist, and it has all the religious symbols. And I was thinking, you know, I think Jesus said something similar, and, and it was better. And he said... Love one another. Coexisting is just like put up with one another. Jesus says, no, love one another. And I thought that was good. That has nothing to do with the message, but I just thought that was interesting. I, if you're new to Hope Church, I'll do that sometimes. I'll go down a bunny trail, but I get pulled back pretty quickly because I have kind of a bungee cord on me that pulls me back. So this statement, God said it, I believe, that settles it. sounds on the surface like really good statement. Solid, makes sense, but there's really what I see two problems, two major problems to the statement. The first one is that there's a real challenge understanding what did God actually say. Uh, in other words, the real challenge is rightly interpreting, understanding, and applying the Bible to our lives. Um, it's if we're all agreed that God said it, and I don't mean did God is this God's word? That's not what I'm saying. But things in here that we read, do we know what God actually did say? You say, well, I'm not sure what you mean. Okay, let me give you a few examples. When we use this phrase, God said it, we have to ask, well, what did God say? And uh, over the centuries, there's been a lot of strange interpretations of different passages. For example, 
In the 1880s, there was a passage from Deuteronomy that was being taught by a lot of pastors. I mean, they were all teaching this, pas- this passage. And, and, and I, want, I want to read it to you right now, and you can turn there if you want to, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12. I'll read it to you, and uh, you, then we'll talk about it briefly. You must have a designated area outside your camp where you can go relieve yourself. Each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with a spade and cover the excrement. The camp must be holy, for the Lord your God moves around in your camp to protect you and to defend your enemies, uh, defeat your enemies, excuse me. He must not see any shameful thing among you, or he will turn away from you. Now, you say, why in the world would pastors find this as an appropriate passage or even a pa- Why in the world would you preach on this passage in the 1880s? Well, the reason was because the beginning of the 1800s, the indoor toilet was invented. So they're, they're transitioning now from outhouses to indoor plumbing, indoor toilets. So you say, well, I still don't get it. Well, at, uh, at that point... Many people had had these uh, toilets in their homes. And they thought, well, the next logical step is to have a toilet in the church. So the debate was, the pastors, some pastors were teaching that the church was the temple of God. And th- thus being the temple of God, it, 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 had, it could have no impurity to it. It was a holy place. And so, therefore, having a, a, a toilet in God's house in the temple was seen as unclean and a clear violation of this passage of Scripture. Now, obviously, we don't take that view because we designed this new building and said, how many restrooms do we need for the, you know, the people when it's at capacity? And uh, we do that. So you say, so, so where's the misunderstanding? Well, uh, there's a few things here. Number one, the Bible says in the New Testament that we are the temple of God. That, you know, and I was raised in a tradition you had to go to a certain place and you had to pray in a certain place and you had to ask for forgiveness in a certain place. But the, what the New Testament says is Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to give you another comforter. He won't just be with you. He will be within you. In other words, you're going to become the temple. Your body is the temple. The Spirit of God dwells within you. And you have immediate access to God to confess your sins, to pray, to connect with God. Because God is not just with you, He's within you. And this place, this, this room, it's beautiful and it's nice and it's a sacred place because God's people are here now. But it's not a temple. It's not a temple. We could be, we could go to one of the schools. We could go down, and we do. We go to the, to the river center. And, and that's not a temple. But it becomes a sacred space when we worship God. See, the space takes on uh, the, the essence of what's happening when we worship God. This space becomes sacred. But we are the temple. So, so rightly, uh, pastors taught, no, we're the temple and, and this is just a building. Yes, it's a, a set apart building, but it's not the temple. And so that's one passage where you go, okay, by the way, um, so we come to the place and we get, we say, okay, so there's a misunderstanding or a dif- divergence of, of understanding in this passage. Some pastors said we shouldn't have toilets on the in, 
inside of the church. Others basically finally said, no, we need to clearly define what the church is and what the, uh, the temple is. And once we do that, we realize that this is an okay thing to do within churches. And we've obviously, most churches, I think, have this. I mean, I haven't been to a church lately and said, oh, our outhouse is about back here. Um, by the way, just a kind of a piece of trivia, um, many people believe that the Thomas Crapper invented the toilet. That's actually not true. Uh, there is a guy, though, named Thomas Crapper who improved the toilet. And the name, you know, we use this name Crap and Crapper and all this stuff. Where that comes from is where servicemen were overseas, Americans, and his name was on the toilets. And so they called it the Crapper, and that's where that kind of spread, that whole thing spread. But a uh, little trivia there that... Uh, he said, in a million years, I would have never figured to get that at church. Well, there you go. So, we come to the passage that I read, and you say, God said it. I believe that that settles it. But you go, but what did he really say, and what was the context, right? Or, let's talk about something else. How many of you have a tattoo? Go ahead. Be, be proud of it. If you've had, okay, you have tattoos. A number of people. Probably if I'd asked that question 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, there would be a lot fewer hands. Uh, many Christians thought getting a tattoo was a direct violation of the clear teachings of Scripture. Uh, some may in this audience still feel that way. And you say, well, why, why in the world would they feel that way? Well, turn to, uh, you don't even have to turn there. I think the verse will be up on the screen. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Notice what it says. Do not cut your bodies for the dead and do not mark your skin with tattoos. I am Lord. Pretty clear, isn't it? Don't cut your bodies and put tattoos on it. So now what do you do? Um, interestingly enough, though, if you go to... The, so that's Leviticus 19.28. Go to Leviticus 19.27 because here's what Leviticus 19.27. That's right one verse before that. Okay, And it says this. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Anyone ever trim your beard, shave, trim your eyebrows, right? Well, it's like the next verse. They're right next to each other. So I think most of us violate one of those, right? And by the way, some of you should trim your eyebrows because you look like a mad scientist. (laughs) Now, the reason I say that is... Because my wife gets after me. All right, I'm just saying. (laughs) So, uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? See, that's the problem. What did God actually say there? What is he saying? We're going to talk about that in, in a little bit. I did a wedding yesterday, and some couples, what, they're, what they'll do, and I haven't been part of a wedding where they've done this, but some couples, what they'll do is they'll exchange a gift or exchange a Bible instead of exchanging rings. You know, exchanging the ring is a, a significant part of most marriage ceremonies. If you've ever, you know, been to a wedding, many of you are wearing wedding rings. Well, you say, well, why, why would Christians who are getting married, not exchange rings. Well, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read that passage to you. 
I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair, by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So if you're wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes, uh, shame on you this morning, by the way. Uh, jump, jump down to 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Don't be concerned about outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. Here again, now you say, well, that was Paul, but now here's Peter saying it's kind of the same thing. So it seems as though what Paul and Peter are both saying here is that you shouldn't wear jewelry, expensive jewelry. Now, I have a way to correct this problem this morning. What I would suggest we do is we'll have the hosts pass the offering basket by. and You put all your expensive jewelry in there. We'll take care of it for you. If you have any paste, that's yours. You keep that. Uh, no, obviously. So the question is, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. The question is, God said what? What's he saying here? Do you see the problem with that statement? The problem with that statement is, I'm not really sure what he's saying here. And is he saying it to me or was he saying it to them? And what was the context? There are verses and passages that must be carefully interpreted, understood, and applied. And and this is what we call the practice of hermeneutics. It's properly understanding and applying the Word of God. And Paul says something. He gives Timothy instruction in 2 Timothy 2.15. And this is the first verse I'd love you to turn to. It's on page 915 of your chair Bible. And we'll be in 2 Timothy a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Paul is giving instructions to young Timothy. And he says this. He says, work hard so that you can preserve yourself to God, or excuse me, present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. You know, as your pastor, one of your pastors, it's my responsibility to correctly, as the best that I can, to explain God's word to you. And that's why I want you to turn to the scriptures. I want you to be what uh, the Bible calls Bereans. The Bereans were a group who, when Paul would preach, they would go back to the Bible and they would say, did, did, did God really say that? They, they would verify it. And so my role is to help to explain the Word of God so that you say, okay, I see that, that makes sense, that, that, that seems like the proper... Now, you know that I've come to passages just in the last three months where I said, I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not really sure. This is my best guess, but I'm not, you know, gun to the head. I'm not going to die for that. Because um, there are those times. Those, there are those times where we're not clear about what the passage is saying. But my job on the weekends is to correctly explain and help you properly apply the Word of God to your lives. Um, so when we say God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We need to remember that there are people who disagree sometimes on what God has truly said. Now, let me just be clear. Before you get to the place and you say, well, then everything here and here is up for grabs. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, as far as the critical matters of faith, the Bible as the Word of God, the Trinitarian nature of God, the virgin birth, 
The substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that just means that Jesus died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. The second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. There's no debate about these. Evangelical Christians are on the same page. We get that. God said it. Uh, I believe it. That settles it, right? There's no debate about that. We, 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 we maybe very fine things, but that's evangelical Orthodox Christianity. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, should I get a tattoo? Should I trim my eyebrows? Um, you know, should I have an indoor toilet in the church? You know, those, those are, different things. So that's the first problem. We're we're trying to discern God said it. Well, the question is, what did God say? Because sometimes we're not sure and there's debate about that. Secondly, we have a middleman. And we need to eliminate the middleman from that passage. We need to come to terms that God's word is authoritative whether I accept it or not. See, the problem I have with that statement is it says God said it. I believe it. Therefore, uh, it, you know, that, that settles it. And, and, and I think we need to take the middleman out and say God said it. That settles it. I don't have to believe it. Whether I believe it or not. That's like saying I'm on top of a building and I don't believe in gravity. Well... I can jump off that building and it will be settled, but it doesn't really matter whether I believe it or not. It's true, right? So the second passage I want you to turn to is 2 Timothy. So here, 2 Timothy 15, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, page 915. But here's the point I want you to say. The second problem in this statement is makes us the finer arbitrator of what is and what is in God's word. Um, that our belief is not the final say in God's word being true or authoritative. We don't give God's word any authority. It has authority, and we just are called to trust it and to follow it and obey it. And we don't get to determine if God's word is true. God's word is true, whether we believe it or not. So Second Timothy chapter two, verse three, or chapter three, verse fifteen, page nine fifteen says this You have been taught the Holy Scripture from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and you might want to underline the next phrase, all scripture is inspired by God. Now let's just stop there because the inspiration there, the word inspiration means this. It's what I'm doing right now. When you talk, you're expecting. You know, you're expressing your your words are coming out. Your breath is coming out. And and that's, you know, when you hear somebody talk or when you hear somebody sing, you'll maybe hear them go. And then the rest of what they're doing is they're exhaling. And that's essentially what it's saying, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong, to correct us when we are wrong. And it teaches us what to do, to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. So God's word shows us what is right, what is wrong how to get right when we fail, and how to stay right. That's essentially what he says. But it's God's Word. Paul's telling us God's Word in and of itself is inspired. We don't give it any authority. Scripture is God-inspired and thus authoritative. Uh, The psalmist says this, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is true. God's word is authoritative. We don't, we don't add anything to the word of God. Um, 
God says, I'm giving you my word. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, right? So we have God's word. Now, I want to stop just for a minute and talk about a movement that's kind of, it's been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, but I I need to make a couple comments about it um, because I think it's it's just, uh, to me, troubling. There is a, and we used to call it the charismatic movement, and now it's called the signs and wonders movement. And within this movement, there are people who call themselves prophets. And essentially what they say is, I have a word from God. I have a revelation from God. God has given me his, his word to tell you. And um, that's been going on for years and years and years. Um, they are uh, the new authoritative word. They are men and women who claim to be prophets. And, and in the past, they've been wrong, and, and I believe they're wrong today. And I think we need to be really careful when we hear somebody say, God gave me a revelation about what he's doing or what he's going to do or what he's about or things along those lines. I think we need to be very careful about when we hear somebody say that because the Bible says this is God's revelation to us, that, that, uh, that he's given us everything that we need in here. And when somebody steps up, and, and what I've found is as I've watched and listened to these uh, prophets, uh, they, they don't really talk much about the Word of God. They talk about a prophecy that God gave them, a, a feeling that God gave them, an unction that God gave them. And um, that's troubling. It's troubling. They downplay the Word of God and they upplay their revelation. And you have to go to them to hear what they have to say rather than going to the Word of God. And frankly, this was a problem during the Protestant Reformation uh, that people didn't have the Bible, and they had to go through the church to get to the Bible. And the whole, the whole purpose of the Protestant Reformation was that common people could get to the Bible and read it for themselves and study it for themselves and be Bereans for themselves. And they, they didn't need a prophet to come. They didn't need a priest. They, they could go directly to the Word of God. And I believe that this movement is taking people away from the Word of God and taking them to follow a prophet, a certain teacher, and this is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears wants to hear. And, you know, here's the thing. What, what some of these prophets are saying is that God wants you healthy. God wants you wealthy. God wants you, you know, God wants you to have the best of life. And I have a problem with that because it seems to me that the only ones that are getting that are those prophets. They're the ones that are flying. And that's not, it's not just health and wealth. Don't get me wrong. There's a whole school of of these prophets out there. And and, um, I'm just troubled by that. But I want you to say, I want to say to you that our final authority is not some prophet who is preaching somewhere. It is not me. It is the Word of God. The Word of God is our final authority. And, and don't let anybody tell you that. You know, the book of Revelation, when you read the book of Revelation, it's kind of a, a difficult book. It's apocalyptic literature, which is something that's beyond what we have generally, and we don't generally understand the book. But essentially we can agree that what the, we use a lot of symbols and, and stuff. Uh, but what we can agree upon is the book of Revelation tells us what God is doing, 
what he has been doing in the past, what he's doing now, and what he's going to do in the future. And how he's going to bring his creation back into key, you know, where it needs to be. And how he's going to bring salvation and heaven and all that. So we can agree on that, right? So God has basically said in the last book of the Bible, he said, this is how everything's going to get tied together and tied up and redeemed and brought together and resolved and everything, okay? I want you to go to Revelation chapter 22 for a moment. So what I'm saying is that Revelation is a last days book. It tells us about the last days. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18, it says something very stern, and we need to hear this warning. John says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of, these, of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share, share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll. So essentially what John's saying is anybody comes to you and says, I have a new revelation we can tack it on, or I'm, get, I'm going to tell you what God is doing. I want to tell you what God is going to do. Essentially, what they're doing is they're adding to the book of Revelation because God said, this is what is happening. This is what is going to happen. And anybody who, who steps up and says, I'm a prophet, I'm going to tell you now what is going to happen, what will happen, is really, I think, violating this passage of Scripture. So maybe a better version of the statement, and we're getting back to our whole God said it, I believe that that settles it. Maybe So that's my little diatribe on these prophets. I'm concerned about that because what I see is I see people looking for experiences, moving away from the Word of God. You know, the Christian life in many ways is, is, is kind of a dull, grinded out, day-by-day, walk-with-God type of a thing. And we have our highs and we have our lows. It's just kind of like life. The real high comes at the end. And there are people, I think, that want a high every day. And they want a, a, an emotional connection every day. And you know what? Uh, you, I don't believe that's what God said. And Jesus said, in, interestingly enough, in this world you'll have tribulation. Every one of us has experienced tribulation. We've lost people close to us. We, you, we, we're in the middle of something right now. We're struggling. And, and people say, well, you don't have to struggle. You don't have to be poor. You don't have... And I just want to say to you, uh, the, the Bible says that you're, you're going to have tribulation. Jesus, Jesus was crucified on a cross. His apostles were crucified or uh, executed. John ended up on an island alone. The first Christians were martyred. Okay? Were they people of less faith? I, I don't believe so. So I'm not trying to paint a, paint a dark picture. I'm just trying to say the Word of God says that there is suffering in following Christ. In fact, the early Christians saw it as, a, as an honor to suffer as Christ. And Peter, it says, the tradition has it, Peter didn't even want to be crucified right side up because he thought it wasn't, he wasn't good enough to die the way his, his Lord did. That's a different view than we have today. We have an American culture that says we need to be wealthy, we need to be healthy, and... Sorry, I just I, I don't I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So let's shorten that statement and let's say God said it. That settles it. I don't have to believe it. That settles it. So how do we approach the scriptures? Let me give you three quick tools in how to approach the scriptures, because anyone can do this. this is, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. There's many Bible scholars out there that can help you, and you don't really have to be a Bible scholar. Let me give you Three tools that I think are really important because I think this is where the wheels come off. 
so many times. The first one is this, context is king. The question is, what is the, ver- what is the context of the verse of the passage I'm looking at? For instance, we looked at this passage that said no tattoos. Well, what's the context? Where's the- Who is that written to? Uh, the most common errors in interpreting the Bible uh, generally comes from taking a verse out of context. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. Secondly, there's cultural concerns. We need to understand uh, that the books of the Bible were written at a different time to a different audience. What was the in- author's intent? What was, when Moses wrote these, these guidelines about tattoos and, 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 and where to... to you know, what to do around the camp of Israel. Why did he do it? What was going on there in the life of the nation of Israel at that point? Why would God say that? Now you have to wrestle with some things before you just go and you, you make a, an applica- a 20th or 21st century application. Who were they writing to? What was their purpose? What's the cultural context of the passage? Uh, not understanding the culture of the book is an easy way to misinterpret the passage. There's many Old Testament laws that we don't follow today. Why? Why don't we follow some of these Old Testament laws? Well, you have to understand what's going on there and see the flow of the, the, the Bible. And let me give you the third tool. The third tool that I think we have out there is we have many intelligent people who have gone before us. You know, Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, um, Modern-day scholars, you know, Don Carson. We have a lot of people who are just very intelligent. They know the, the, the culture. They know the languages, and they can help us. What I'm saying to you is this. There's a historical orthodoxy out there where people have said, we, we already said on like the virgin birth, the Trinity, and different things like that. That's a, that's a doctrinal orthodoxy, but that's the, you know that's clearly taught in the Scripture. And it took a while for the church to come up with that. And you know the Apostles' Creed was the first expression of that. But now we we have these church fathers and others that we can learn from. They're not always completely right, but we don't have to be out on our own. And what I'm finding today is there are people out there who say, "I have a new revelation from God." And they're out in the middle of the field and you say, but your revelation from God doesn't square with the teaching of Scripture. Uh, It's from God. And I'm going, well, you you can stick with that. I'm going to stick with this. And so you allow the Word of God and allow uh, those who have gone before us to help you uh, understand the Bible. Here's the last thing I want to say. The Bible is God's Word to humanity. It's our final authority in all matters of faith. But we must still do the hard work of interpretation, of properly understanding and application of passages if we're to live in obedience to God's will. Now, probably 90% of what we're talking about is we, we, we already know what we need to do. So we don't have to, we don't have, to have a, a prophet or, I mean, a, a pastor or a, 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 a Bible scholar to come and explain what it says, do not steal or love one another. Um, maybe we have to flesh that out and say, what does that look like in application to love one another? But th- that's not our problem. So this, we're not talking about a major, you know, every one of us are going, I don't even know the first thing to do. We do know what to do. Our problem is we just choose not to obey. But when we use that statement, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's a trite statement. It's got a couple major errors in it, major issues in it. And, uh, when properly understood, when you say God said it, that settles it, that's fine. 
You've got to understand, though, what did God actually say? Because if you don't have that right, then the statement kind of goes away. So that's the problem I have with that statement. And uh, if, you, if you take anything from what I said this morning, would you please take this? This is God's word to you. This is the most precious thing you have on earth. This is the most precious thing you have because it is from God to you. And treasure it. Enjoy it. Dig into it. Allow it to change your heart because this is the book that will transform everything in your life and give you hope and heal relationships and bring you down when you're in the depths and give you hope when you're going through a valley. This book will do it. No prophet. No nothing else will do it. And this is the book that says in the end, God wins. And he's preparing a place for those who love him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. And your word is truth. But yet, we have itching ears sometimes. We also are not nearly as good as students as we should be of your word. Help us to devour it. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit who can assist us in understanding your word with illuminating the scripture for us. Father, may we be people of the book who when we hear something new or something different or something that seems questionable, the first thing we do is we say, where is it written? Where is it written? Where is it in the Bible? May we be good Bereans. Thank you, Father, that in your word you have revealed your perfect plan of salvation. That Jesus came from heaven to earth. That he climbed up on a cross and he took our sin. He came as a rescue party of one and he lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. And all who call upon Jesus will find forgiveness and hope and life. We thank you. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for giving us your truth. We love you and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.